Thank you so much to Century.io and DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode. So as you may know, I just launched the new Remote Ham Radio Nuxt application. And uh, yeah, turns out it's pretty broken. I've got the Century client in there and it's reporting every single crash that's occurring. There's tons of errors I've never even seen before because I don't really have access to the breadth of devices and operating systems and browsers that all my users do. And of course, the users aren't reporting the errors. These are things I'm seeing for the very first time, but I'm still able to go in and fix it. I can do this because I have all the contextual information about every single crash. I got a stack trace. I know which release of my application they're using. I know which user caused it. And I can see a breadcrumb trail so I can see everything they did leading up to the action. In fact, just this week, a user sent me a video of his iPad showing a crash. And because I knew when it occurred, what user it was, and what operating system it was on, I was really easily able to dig in, find the crash, the exact line that was causing it, and fix it and deploy it right away. It was really, really sweet. And of course, I just have the Sentry client installed on the browser, but there's also server plugins for Rails and Elixir applications. So head on over to Sentry.io if you want to give it a try as well. There's a free developer account, which is great for personal projects and early stage applications. Sentry.io, your code is broken. Let's fix it together. Welcome back to the show, Dave. Thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm excited to have you back and to catch up. We haven't talked in a while. Uh, so yeah, just to recap for anyone who isn't aware, um, this is friend of the show, Dave, Dave Lucia. I said it right this time. And uh, he was on the show a few weeks ago. I can't remember exactly how long ago, but a few weeks ago, and we talked about Rust and NIFS and some other things. And uh, so he's back with us again while Rockwell's uh, getting some sun on that skin. He's on vacation <laughs> somewhere right now. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully not checking emails and stuff. So uh, welcome back, Dave. Thank you very much for having me. Very excited to be back. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back. So um, what's going on in your world? It, it sounds like every time I've kind of like, kind of rub elbows with you and the electric slack or whatever, you're always working on this crazy stuff that I have barely am aware of what it even is. Yeah, I, I barely even know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so... Right now, I'm in the middle of uh, working on SimpleBet's first product. Uh, I talked a bit about this the last time, but we're building this application that uses machine learning to calculate the odds of sports betting markets. And there's so much uh, interesting uh, things that I've been having to solve uh, along with my team in order to build this application. And I think we were talking earlier, it was like yesterday or today, we were talking about um, distributed processes and registries, which is a really interesting and cool topic. Right. I don't know if we should just start talking about them, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So you, I mean, you mentioned to me swarm and horde and I made a world of Warcraft joke and (laughs) I think that's about as far as it, it went, I think. So, I mean, like I'm, I'm vaguely aware of, of, uh, what like Docker swarm, I assume you mean by swarm Docker swarm. And that's about where my awareness of it ends, I guess. So essentially you're talking about a distributed network, right? You're distributed, like you have a bunch of different nodes running that are kind of connecting together and talking to each other. So actually Docker Swarm is actually not what I was talking about. It's something different. Now I'm trying to remember what Docker Swarm is. Is that different from Docker Compose? I feel like they're like kind of the same thing. Oh yeah. So yeah. So Compose, uh, they're, they're different. Compose just allows you to compose a bunch of services together so you have your docker compose file and in that docker compose file you have configurations like saying this is my db service this is my web service so basically you can say these are all the services that i have um these are how the ports map together and then when you when you want to run all of your services at once you say docker compose up and it starts all that stuff together is that like a an alternative to kubernetes does it solve a different problem I'm like, I've spent some time with Kubernetes, but I'm always kind of, I feel like I spent uh, an entire month reading two different Kubernetes books. Yeah. And then afterwards, I felt like I was dumber than when I started. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Docker Swarm, I haven't used it myself. From what I've read about it, it just seems like cluster management, basically. So it just integrates with Docker. So you have mm-hmm. your different Docker configuration files, and you can use Docker Swarm to basically spin up a, a swarm or a collection of nodes that I assume network together. Um, I have barely looked at 
Kubernetes. I looked at it briefly for Design Collective and I got scared and stopped looking at it. Uh, it it seems like just more than I needed. And, and, but in my mind, I think like Docker Swarm and, and Kubernetes are more related than say something like Docker Compose. But um, that's my like very brief or shallow understanding of Docker Compose anyway, is that you can just use your Docker services and use Docker Swarm to basically tie them together and deploy uh, deploy horizontally, I guess. Right. Maybe what I'm hearing is that Docker Swarm and Docker Compose kind of are solve some of the same problems together that Kubernetes solves. Because Kubernetes, you define like services and pods and network configurations and all of these things. And it does so many so many things that are, I feel like, nearly impossible to learn by one person in a short period of time. Uh, but anyways, what I was actually talking about was an Elixir library that's called Swarm. Oh. And I, I feel like when I come on, we talk a lot about Elixir stuff, and maybe you're, maybe the people who listen to this podcast aren't entirely aware of all of the Elixir ecosystem stuff. Um, mm. But one of the really cool things about the Elixir ecosystem is how you can have many instances of your application running that are all connected together. They're called nodes. Mm-hmm. And when they connect together, you can send messages between processes in your application um, seamlessly between nodes. Like you don't even necessarily know that a process is on the, the machine you're currently on or somewhere else. Um, but the problem that that comes up when you start to do anything sophisticated is you might want like just say one of a particular process running on um, your entire cluster of machines. So you're, you're in nodes that are all talking to get to each other and that's where swarm comes in. Okay. So, so with swarm, you could say like, I want, let's think about it in terms of like discord, right? So, uh, imagine we were building Discord in Elixir, which is isn't it built in Elixir? Uh, yeah, some of it. So there's a post I could probably put in the show notes, um, but they're they're they are using Elixir um, in production, and I'm sure they're using Erlang and a bunch of other stuff. But Elixir is a big part of it. Okay, so let's imagine that this podcast right now is a Discord chat, right? And so you want one process which is containing all of the messages in our chat, and it's a name process because we're we're in an episode. And so in the cluster, you'd only want that process existing once. And so you want to register that and anyone who talks to it should be able to find it and then be able to send messages to it. Okay. And so what, what Swarm does, which is really interesting, is it builds that registry uh, across all the nodes in your cluster and it uses what's called um, CRDTs which are conflict-free replicated data types. And it uses that to keep state in sync across all nodes so that um, there's not like one place where all the state of the registry uh, exists. Um, And that's in opposition to something like the global process registry, which is part of uh, Erlang and OTP. Yeah, yeah. So that's what actually I was going to ask about next was the global process because my my experience of this ends at using um, I think the library is called XQ. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's called XQ uh, for Elixir, and I basically use it to spin up Redis jobs for Design <laughs> Collective. Nice. Uh, and we can't really use a lot of the OTP stuff because we're on Heroku, and Heroku can restart our dynos whenever they please. So we can't. And, and, and there's not, uh, as far as I'm aware, you can't assign yourself like static IP addresses. And so that makes things like this a problem. Um, but, but, uh, XQ does talk about global processes. And so basically if you have a couple of nodes that are cooked up, you can say, I only want jobs to run on this one, but I want other nodes to be able to schedule jobs from anywhere. Right. That's interesting. Um, is XQ, you say it's for Redis, uh, jobs. Uh, so XQ is the scheduler. Uh, so whatever you use to actually run the jobs, you, you can use anything you want. So you could use ads, for example. Um, but I just happen to use Redis because, again, Heroku can restart my crap whenever they want. And so I could be in the middle of a long-running job and they could just, you know, I could write, I could deploy something and then it just restarts everything, which would be trouble. So XQ is basically, uh, I guess you could think about it similar to Cron. It's just like the scheduler library. Um and you can use it to to fire off tasks that happen in memory or Redis or wherever you want, essentially. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, there's a few uh, really interesting scheduling libraries in Elixir that I've at least come across but never really used. Um, so one of the really cool things about Swarm, uh, and actually one of the cool things about 
distributed registries is that once you understand how they work, um, it's like it almost seems impossible that they work so well. But then if you really try and play with it and explore the edges of it, you kind of see where certain things fall apart and where you need more. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of investigating this this week because um, the application that we're building requires that we have a globally registered process that let's say uh, we have a network partition where two of our nodes, they lose network connectivity. And what happens in that situation is the the registry, the distributed registry, because they can't see the other side, is, is like, oh, I need this process. And so it starts it up. Oh, I see. Right? And that's what yeah. it's typically called a split brain, where there's two two things who think they're in control, but there really should only be one. And so when that network partition heals, um, you have to make a decision, like, which process dies? What do we do with the state? Like, if there's different state on each, how do we reconcile? Mm-hmm. And Swarm gives some you some facilities for when that happens. It's going to send message to both processes. And I actually think it chooses which one dies. Huh. But then it kind of forces you to deal with, like, what should happen with the state if it diverged on either process. Uh-huh. But what I learned about Swarm that I didn't know uh, going into this week is that it solves the problem of a distributed registry, but what it doesn't solve is supervision. So how how much have you played with the supervision model in Elixir, Sean? <laughs> Not much. Well, let me let me say this first. I did I made a mistake earlier when I was saying XQ. XQ actually is basically just another Redis library. I was talking about quantum. Uh, the quantum is the scheduler. Uh, so you want to make sure that's cleared up because I'm sure someone's shaking their fists and scratching their head. Uh, how much have I played with the supervision model? Um, I have not. <laughs> okay. So that's that was my case too. Um, yeah. Working at the outline, like I might have mentioned this the last time, but really did not spend much time. I mean, I, some percentage of my time, but really small amount actually digging into OTP and building gen servers and tasks and stuff like that. Uh, what you find for uh, most web applications is that it's not really that often that you need to dig that deep. But for this current application that I'm building, we're actually really leveraging OTP just because it's a very different style of application that we're building, uh, very different types of problems. And so one of the things I was thinking about is like, okay, we have this globally registered process and now we have this really cool CRDT based registry, which can uh, distribute state. And what happens if that process crashes? Right. And my first thought was like, oh, well, Swarm is a distributed registry. Like it must restart it wrong. (laughs) It does not restart it at all. And so I'm like, oh, no problem. I'll just like, I'll start it via Swarm, but I'll put it in a supervisor and everything will be great. Again, wrong. (laughs) Uh, So what turns out is that if you supervise your process uh, via Swarm, and then you get in that split brain scenario, um, the supervisor will just keep both sides alive. It won't kill either process. And so now you have two globally registered processes under the same name, and you get this now uh, a split brain that won't uh, heal, Mm -hmm. which is worse. And so what I found out is that Swarm's oldest issue in GitHub is asking for a distributed supervisor, which kind of solves the problem of, okay, once that split brain heals, some supervisor needs to take over Mm -hmm. and manage the process. Um, And the other one needs to let their process die. And Swarm does not have that at all. But there's this really interesting library called Horde, which is the World of Warcraft. um, The pun I made. (laughs) so it it tries to pick up where swarm left off and uh, build that that extra piece that distributed uh supervisor in addition to the super uh distributed registry okay uh it's it's really it's really cool um it's using this data structure called a merkle tree man we're getting down a rabbit hole here i'm sorry i'm just very excited about merkle trees (laughs) Uh, a merkle tree is it's like your everyday tree that you might have might have heard of used. Um, trees are uh, a data structure where you have a node and uh, nodes have many children. Uh, if you're familiar with a binary tree, mm-hmm. binary trees where you have nodes have 
one, two, uh, or zero children. Um, but what's unique about a Merkle tree is that a Merkle tree keeps a hash at every node of its children. And this has some very interesting properties. Now, what I mean by a hash is like it takes the the value of all of its children and, and hashes them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually looking at a diagram from Wikipedia right now, so it's making sense. I'll put all the I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes as well. Right. So there's actually what you should also put in the show notes, which is incredible, and actually where I learned about all this is the guy who's been writing Horde, he's been writing all these really fantastic blog posts. And one of them, I could actually feel his excitement because I guess he learned about what a Merkle tree was through, uh, it was a conference or some talk. And he's like, oh shit, that's like a perfect fit for what I'm trying to do. And so he built his own Merkle, I think it's called Merkle map in Elixir. Yeah. And I found the blog post already. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. And so what's so cool about a Merkle tree, which I haven't talked about, is because you have a hash um, at every node, if you have a hash at every node, that means you have a hash at the root node. And so that means that you can compare two trees for equality just by comparing the hashes of both of the root nodes. Um, And that applies for every node. So like tree diffing is super, super, super cheap. Hmm. Um, the downside is that there's a little bit more bookkeeping whenever you insert into the map. So inserts are a little bit slower. Sure. But what this means is that state diffing is really cheap. And so he built um, his CRDT implementation on top of this this Merkle map library that that he wrote. And there's just some really cool, interesting stuff that like got me excited about computer science. <laughs> like, like felt like I pushed up my glasses and I was like, whoa, this is cool. Um, I don't wear glasses, by the way. I'll push mine up for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anyways, I've been learning just like going down a rabbit hole, learning about this stuff. And it's really, really interesting. Um, I really suggest going through all the blog posts from uh, Derek Cron. It looks like his name is who who wrote the Horde library. Yeah, I actually already, yeah, I put all those stuff in the show notes. So those are all there. This is really interesting to me, like the note about, you, you know, like in, in a Merkle tree, since there's a hash stored on every every node of its children, how, like you said, it's kind of more intensive when you're adding things to it because you have to calculate the hash and update all the hashes. Uh, but the trade-off is that it's extremely easy and efficient to calculate the divs. That's that's really cool to me. Cause, so when I think about trees and, and, and especially binary trees and things like that, I'm always thinking about, in my mind, I always just go back to virtual DOM, for example, because that's, that's partly where I was first introduced to the mm-hmm. idea of a binary tree. And uh, I think especially when I started reading more into GraphQL, I think the first GraphQL book I started to read, which I can't remember what it was called, started out with uh, graph theory and started out with binary trees and in kind of introducing that stuff. So that's actually where I learned about these trees. And yeah, it, this stuff is really interesting to me because it's not something that I ever use uh, from day to day design collective, like design collective is, is your pretty standard web app stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this is very interesting. And it's, I guess the disconnect for me is like, it's always hard. So I'll, I'll read about like some of these computer sciencey terms. And then it's hard for me to reconcile that with like a real world example or how that's useful. But the example that you're bringing here makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're kind of like, you're introducing me to this real world example. And then you're kind of doing it reverse, right? You have this example and then you're connecting it to the computer science explanation of it. Yeah. And that's actually what was really fun for me too. It was like that journey. I was like, oh, this is really cool. I have no idea how it works. And then just someone who obviously was so excited about it kind of broke it down in this really interesting way. And now I'm like, I feel like I get it. And I got to the point where I was like reading through the Merkle map source code and I was like, whoa, this is, this is like not that complicated to understand, but like so powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's something that once you get is very intuitive, but I mean, I don't think I ever would have thought of using a Merkle map to do anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is interesting because I, I think like before you, if you were to read about this stuff before you actually had that, that problem, you'd be like, how would I ever use this or where, what, given what scenario would this make sense to use? And then, you know, having this complicated problem, uh, I think the problem makes sense to me now, like, like you're saying, you know, it's if it sees that this this process that it needs isn't existing, the supervisor is going to start it on up. And then you have, like you said, the split brain. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that term. Or I think maybe Rockwell's mentioned like a similar thing to me, but I've never heard of the term actually like split brain. 
before, but it makes makes total sense, right? Because then you're basically having to reconcile. You have two pieces of state existing, and then when the network comes back up and they're able to connect each other, you're like, oh shoot, here we have two pieces of state. How do we how do we merge this stuff together? Essentially, exactly. Yeah, I can't I can't hear the word split brain like out loud without thinking of like some like little gremlin monster creature whose <laughs> his brain has been split into two smaller creatures, you know, competing against uh, one another. And, and that, that's kind of how, like, when you think about Erlang and processes and how the whole thing works and fits together, um, it's really it's really interesting when you think about it in the context of, like, the larger distributed system and all the problems that you need to solve um, when you get at uh, a problem of that scale. And so it's been really fun for me in, the, in this new job to sort of really get into some of these problems because um, it's not something that you necessarily always get exposed to or even really need to know about, but certainly fun to learn about. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep Design Collective as simple as I possibly can and avoid all situations like that. <laughs> um, but it's really it's always really interesting for me to learn about this stuff. And I mean, an example of how I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible is is we have some messaging stuff that we built out. So essentially, um, instead of relying on live chat all the time, we built out basically an email relay. So uh, if you're trying to message a store, uh, we store the message, uh, like the conversation stuff in our database, and then it goes through the message relay. And so the store actually gets an email about it. So they can either click on a link and go to the conversation view and chat in real time. Well, quote unquote real time, which is what I'm getting at. Or they can reply to the email. So when they reply to the email, it goes back to the gateway. Um, and then we know who sent it in the message. So we apply it back to the proper conversation, right? So basically, we want people to be able to communicate to each other regardless if they're on our website at that moment or if they're just in their inbox replying. It, it's just useful for our stores, right? Uh, and and so, yeah, we're on Elixir. Elixir does WebSockets in real time like amazingly well and all that. But just to keep it simple for the first pass of this, uh, I'm just doing polling updates for the chat interface, <laughs> you know? So like, yeah, I have all this capability to do this real time stuff. And that's partly why I chose Elixir because we're moving more in that direction, but just one person, you know? So instead of having to figure out that layer, because that would have been the first actual real time layer that we're adding in, I just said, let's just poll it. it it's fine for now, you know? So it's interesting because you know, I, I like to think eventually we'll get into some of this stuff, but for now I'm like just so 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 starved on like human hours because I only have forty hours a week to do all this, all the things right that I'm I'm actively like uh let's just let's just make this page literally request if there are new chat messages every every one second or something right I I don't think there's like until you get to a certain scale or you're looking for a certain level of performance it's so great sometimes to like have the luxury of not having to deal with those sorts of problems and just do like the dumbest, simplest thing. Mm -hmm. Actually a great example of this was building the outlines content management system. And we're like thinking like really hard about, okay, like it'd be so awesome if, um, you know, as you're typing and you're writing a story, like you could see it live next to you. And we're just like, Oh, that'd be so challenging. Like, I don't know how you do that. We're just like, oh, like, well, what would happen if, like, on every keystroke, like, we just re-rendered, like, an iframe, right? So, like, every keystroke, it would just make a request and re-render an iframe. Mm -hmm. And it turns out in Phoenix, like, that's, like, microseconds super fast to just, like, re-render a template. And we're able to build a content management system that has live preview that works by, on every single keystroke, re-rendering the page. Right. And do... <laughs> Doing the dumb thing first actually worked actually indefinitely. It, it just it continued to work and it was the dumbest, simplest solution possible that just works. And when you have a really good platform like Elixir, stuff like that is possible, which is really cool. Yeah, it's almost like live view before live view, right? Yeah, exactly. We'd like to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring Does Not Compute. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for powering your applications and you can easily scale as your business grows. There's a powerful administration dashboard to manage all of your servers, storage, and networking resources, which work together as an all-in-one solution to help you save time and money while scaling your applications. 
DigitalOcean services have predictable, affordable pricing, so don't muck around with the complicated pricing structures that can lead to nasty surprises on your monthly invoice. You always know exactly what your business is paying for their industry-leading price performance services and their many data centers all around the globe. DigitalOcean droplets are quick to provision, you'll have a virtual machine running in seconds, and they scale to applications of any size, provision one droplet or hundreds. They also offer managed database hosting and spaces, which offers S3-compatible object storage at competitive pricing. So if you're thinking about trying them out, well, we can help. You can get started today with the free credit at do.co slash does not. You can have a real VPS running in just seconds. Again, that's do.co slash does not to receive a free credit towards a flexible and scalable hosting solution for your next application. Yeah. Have you tried LiveView out, speaking of it? I haven't. Uh, I think we talked about it very briefly last time, and I, I've still been wanting to try it. Um, I think I was messaging to you yesterday or last week whenever we spoke. I really want to build um, an SVG charting library. Right, so I'm dealing a lot with probability distributions, and so it'd be so great to visualize them. And I really don't want to write any JavaScript, and I would like it to be live updating. So it's like, why not build the simplest possible SVG rendering library that can render a chart, and then as the distributions update live, the page just updates via Phoenix Live View. That would be so cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty neat. I mean, it sounds like what some of the perfect use cases are for. I think like those are most of the examples I'm seeing besides games, which are okay. Um, I think one of the most compelling arguments for using something like that is, is exactly the scenario you're describing something that needs to update real time. Um, and, and allows you to scaffold that out quickly. Uh, so I, I mess with live view a little bit and I think, I think it'll be a little bit easier for maybe for me to grab my head around once there are more documentation, once the docs are more fleshed out, I suppose, mm-hmm. and there are maybe some official guides, because I think that was the hardest thing for me up front was how do I actually structure this thing? Because there are some people that are starting to kind of stumble upon a, a, a way to organize stuff in the Elixir forums. But if you're if you're looking for tutorials or articles that kind of tell you how to do it, uh, it's sort of all over the map in terms of how things are things are done. And so, I mean, I've seen some articles sort of sort of wrapping wrapping like the entire page essentially in a live view and then i've seen some articles saying yeah don't do that only wrap the small pieces so like sprinkle small live views out uh, around a big page instead of like making the whole thing a live view if that makes sense yeah that does make sense and i was actually wondering about that the big the big question that i have that again i haven't dug into it too much but ultimately Live is probably going to have to figure out how to talk with JavaScript, and it's my understanding that there is some like API that that does provide for hooks into LiveView from the JavaScript standpoint. Yeah, that's a hairy edge. It's a very hairy edge. To me, it felt a lot like um, it felt a lot like what's that? I think it was Rails UJS unobtrusive JavaScript. I think it was called. Uh, and I, I guess you know Phoenix has. I have. It's been so long since I've used like the Phoenix server side stuff, but Phoenix has a JavaScript library where you can. Um, basically, it's like you add data attributes to stuff. So, like, uh, if you want a button to disable on submit, you can say disable, or or I can't remember what the syntax is, but I, for whatever reason, I remember Rails is, and it's disable disable with, and you can pass it a message. So you click the button, um, and and the UGS or whatever library is observing the page sees that you basically called the special incantation, and it'll do the thing to the DOM that you need, right? And, I, and I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering correctly, that LiveView has something similar. So you can actually add specific, uh, essentially, attributes to your the HTML that's going over the wire that listens or watches for like form changes or click events and things like that. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I did see the annotations. Um, it's funny. I, I actually saw somewhere Chris McCord was like, yeah, I wrote live view because I basically hated JavaScript and like wanted to do it all from the server side. But in building live view, I had to write a ton of JavaScript and spent like a good majority of his time in JavaScript. Right. Uh, <laughs> which is like, I guess, um, you know, didn't quite, quite get where, uh, what he asked for, but it's really, is a really interesting thing for the community. And, um, Again, I think we were talking about this last time, but just like the, the capabilities of people building games and stuff and really pushing the boundaries of, of what this thing can do is really interesting. And um, now I've, I think I've found a use case for it. Um, and I'm actually curious. It's like, okay, we're, we're building these React applications at work. 
like, could we build them in something like live view and how much time would that save us? And would it save us time in the long run? Like, is this a good maintainable solution? I I don't know the answer. So that was going to be my follow-up question is if you were to stop at the first one. So is this going to save us time, comma, will it save us time in the long run? So in my mind, I see, you know, people building things like monitoring dashboards and stuff like that, and you can get out the door and that's that's essentially your MVP version, right? Mm-hmm. And and then what? You know, is there? It, it, I guess depends on who's using it and what the needs are, right? Because my product experience tells me that there's going to be a manager somewhere that starts asking for this or asking for that. There's going to be some team here that needs this feature, some team over there needs that feature. And wouldn't it be great? You get an email. Wouldn't it be great if it did this? You know, like a passive aggressive feature request. <laughs> Do you get a lot of this? Uh, no comment. And then. <laughs> And then you're like, okay, so so what does this look like in the wrong, long run? Okay, if if LiveView is super new, there there's probably some edge cases that they need to be ironed out. Are you gonna? You're most certainly gonna run into one of those, you know. So then, how much time are you digging into researching and asking people that have done something similar, right? Um, versus maybe the initial time if you're using React or whatever to build it, um, maybe it's a little bit more. But the path to X essentially is, I think, is more known, whereas live views is is more unknown. Do you think, like, given, let's say, we're we fast forward two years in the future and there's some maturity to live view, uh, does that change drastically? Like, is it just about the maturity of libraries and and things you can pull the shelf out there, or is it more about the size of the community? I don't think the size of the live view community will ever compare to React. Right. That's. I mean, that's a good question. When I think about it, I'm I'm the the sole person on my tech team, so a big pull for me is uh, a community of things that exist or will be existing soon. That means that I don't have to do it because my time is super scarce. Not that other people on you know teams aren't their time isn't scarce, but currently right now I'm like splitting my time between writing Google Docs, answering questions, and then maybe if I can get to it, actually like doing something to the platform, you know? <laughs> uh, so for me, that's a really enticing thing. Like having having something where I can kind of like pull off of the shelf essentially and use is, is great. Now, obviously I picked Elixir uh, when compared to Rails or Node or whatever, obviously the ecosystem is smaller, but I'm super productive with Elixir, which is great. So maybe that would be the case with LiveView. I think... I think Elixir as a language, uh, there's just something about it that that uh, again, I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's because I like the feel the paradigm makes more sense to me. But I I hit like this 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 area where I'm able to just get work down to focus and not have to spend a lot of time in documentation and stuff. Uh, so that that could be it. I mean, that could be because I spend all my time in Elixir, or it could be because of like Elixir's quality of documentation and stuff is super good, but. I, I think like if if LiveView gets to that point, you know, I think then there wouldn't be an issue for me. But I think that's always in the back of my mind because of uh, me being on a super small team of one, essentially. That's like something I'm paranoid about. If I choose this, well, I have to dump the time that I don't have into it later. So then how do you feel about JavaScript frameworks? Are you, you prefer Vue? Is that what you guys use at? Uh... Yeah, we use Vue. And how do you like Vue? I hear so many, like the people who like Vue, like really love it. <laughs> and I, I don't know what about Vue, like yeah. emotes that, that feeling. Um, but I, I really do sense that like the Vue community is really good. Yes. It, it depends. My answer is it depends. Um, I am at the, like I've been using Vue since I think like 0.14 or something like that. So it's it's been a long time now. And I think for me, when I stumbled across Vue, I had come from Backbone, and and uh, I think I did Angular for a couple of projects before that. So I think coming from Angular and Backbone into Vue, I think Vue had the right amount of conventions and rules that you had to follow versus freedom to allow you to to build what you want to build. And I think it still is that is is that case. And so when I go and look at the React world, and I'm not like firing shots or anything like that, but uh, I think Vue gives me enough rules that it gives me enough. I can stay in my lane and be productive, and I'm not having to. 
uh, Google for how does this person solve that and how does this person solve that? And I'm not, I'm not kind of forced to look at a bunch of different ways of solving one problem. View kind of has the view way to do things in, in, I think most cases. And so I just stick to that. And I think there's a lot of parallels for me anyway with Elixir and Phoenix, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty open-ended, like with Elixir's context or the idea of context or, you know, domain-driven design and boundaries and stuff. It allows me to design how I want to design my my, my data layer, pretty much. Uh, but uh, but from there, you know, outside of that, there's there's sort of just conventions that you follow because Elixir, right? Uh, I guess idioms, maybe. Mm-hmm. So granted, you know, I have done a few projects in React, but I've never been fully versed in React before. But when I did do those projects, I had to make more choices than I wanted to make. And it's same thing. It feels very much like when I go from something like Elixir or, or Rails to Node, I have to make more decisions than I want to make. So when I'm in Elixir, Ecto is the thing. Phoenix is the thing. Learn those, you're good, right? And I feel like when I go to Node, do I want to use Express? Do I want to use Happy? Do I want to use Nest? Do I want to use... Okay, so we got the, the routing layer essentially figured out. Okay, so what do I want to use for an ORM? Do I want to use an ORM? Do I want to use Data Mapper? I don't know. Okay, so now we have an ORM picked out. How do I manage my migrations? So... I feel like with Vue, it kind of removes a lot of these decisions that I don't necessarily want to make from uh, the things that I have to, to make. Yeah, I totally get that. I did React at the outline for two and a half years. And at the end of, of that period, I still was like not sure how I wanted to approach new React projects. It's like, okay, do I want to manage my state with uh, Redux? Do I want to use MobX? Uh, oh, hooks are a new thing. Should I just be using hooks? There is a lot of questions that were were left unanswered, and actually, I think that's true of just the JavaScript JavaScript ecosystem. Period. Like, sure. You know, I always wanted to reach for immutable JS, um, which I don't know if you've ever used, but it's a mutable uh, data structure library, and it adds a lot of really nice facilities. But it, it kind of, you know, one of the big selling points of functional languages um, that have mutable data structures is that there's just a certain class of bugs that are removed when you have immutable data structures. Sure, yeah. Uh, um, and to have that in JavaScript sometimes is really fal- invaluable, but adding immutable JS, which is a library, not a language level thing, adds a lot of complexity. And if you use it in one corner of your application, slowly but surely, it starts to eat the whole thing. <laughs> and it was always felt like this, like... Um, library paralysis of like, all right, which which library should yeah. I be using? Do I do I refactor? Do I do I use this new thing? Yeah. And you know, JavaScript fatigue, I feel like, is something that was played out a little bit too much. Um, but there there is a problem, which in the, like, there's not um, a prescribed way of doing things. And one of the nice things that I really like about Elixir is that um, there's a clear tool. F- for most problems, um, and it at least yeah. removes that design, uh, that choice paralysis, rather. And to and to me, Elixir or not Elixir, but Vue is more along that vein. And uh, there are things that maybe you might fight with, or I might fight with, or you know, sometimes I wish it were more just straight JavaScript. That's one thing I admire about React and in JSX is it's just just JavaScript functions, right? It's just functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Vue is you know, it's the base. The, what you're working with with single file components, I mean, you're exporting an object and then inside that object you have your different lifecycle things that you can do, whether it's like events like uh, created or mounted or something, or whether it's like the methods object and the method object holds all the methods that the template has access to, for example. Um, and so for me, view, like I said, kind of gave me rules like, oh, you have methods for your for this component, they go here. Oh, you have computed state for this component, it goes here. And it kind of made those decisions f- for me. And I think the other thing too is that, like you said, uh, some of those decisions or some of the ecosystem stuff is there. So for example, Elixir, if you're doing a web framework or a web service, you're probably going to hit Phoenix. Uh, in Vue, if you need some sort of centralized state management, you're just going to hit Vuex because that's the first party solution. That's just what they have. Um, in and so for me, again, I think like you, you mentioned basically like decision paralysis, especially when you got into the node world, it's like after so many, you know, hours or weeks or months or whatever on a project, you're still kind of at the end, like unsure if 
you use the right things or you should continue to use the things that you used before. Uh, with Design Collective, it's been probably two and a half years. And uh, the only new thing we added to Design Collective was Nuxt. And everything, and then that was because before it was a view up that was booted on top of Phoenix server rendered pages. So once we once we split the front end out, it just goes on Nuxt. And we haven't added a new major dependency since. It's, it's always just been view, Nuxt, and some Vuex sprinkled in. Uh, aside from like smaller little components and stuff, but it's always been sort of the same backbone. Now I've heard about Nuxt, but I actually at this point I've kind of lost what it, the problem is trying to solve. It's something to do with um, serverless or uh, single page app hydration, something of that order. Yeah. So are you familiar with Next JS? You know they, they're all they're all blending <laughs> sure, into sure. one another. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So so if you go to the Nuxt website, you might see nuxjs.org i think it is you might see like fancy words like uh isomorphic and all that stuff but essentially what it does is exactly what you're saying it handles the server-side rendering of of your data and then it handles the hydration so uh so basically like when you land on a page you're going to get html and css instead of a javascript payload and then when the view app boots up it handles reconciling the state of the page versus the the view client essentially right um and so you could do that yourself. You could take control of it. So there are frameworks like Vuetify, for example, that kind of handle that stuff for you. But Nux essentially is, I'm trying to think of a good comparison. Uh, comparing it to Rails isn't great because Rails does so much more and it, it's not it's not focused in the same area. But essentially Nux is like a set of, of, it's like a scaffolded application. And so basically like your page routes go here, your components go here. Again, it's very similar to view itself where it says like if you want to add a module something that's run before each request it goes here if you want to add a plugin something that's instantiated once uh, like a google analytics plugin for example it goes here if you want to do this thing it goes here so it basically just says uh it's almost like a pre-compiled playbook for you to follow in a sense uh so it does handle like the server-side rendering it handles the hydration stuff handles the complicated bits of that flow for you. But to me, the most important thing about it is it gives you some more rules that you can follow in structuring a spa in a nice way. Love to go to the spa. <laughs> I love the spa. Yeah. But I, I guess like maybe that's what you're gathering is like, I like some good rules to follow. <laughs> uh, I like some decisions to be made for me. And I think that's what Nux did is it basically made a bunch of decisions for you. And if you can play, if you can play by those rules, great, you're going to be productive you can customize it and things like that but mostly like if you just jump in and play by the rules you're gonna have a great time that's cool i'll, I'll have to check that out and uh there's a few side projects that maybe that would be a good fit for actually yeah i mean i have a feeling like you're gonna message me and and i think really you're probably gonna be most upset with the templating right because <laughs> it's not javascript it's you have some directives and custom custom directives and things like that to memorize but like once you actually memorize them they're they're really simple and People always compare it to... I'm already upset. People always compare it to Angular in that sense. But for me, Angular was way over the top. Uh, it was Angular was difficult for me, but Vue to me is like just the right amount of Vue magicness, I suppose, and JavaScript merged together. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to be your Vue liaison if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, maybe maybe that is what I'm looking for. You know, I, I got caught on React. I don't know if you know this or if we've talked about this, but when I was at Bloomberg... Um, we built one of the first, actually, maybe now it's coming with Deja Vu. I think we talked about this again last time. Um, but we built a library on top of Backbone.js called Brisket. Oh, no way. I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've told you about this. Um, and what Brisket was, uh, it was built by a friend, Wayne Warner. Hi, Wayne. Wayne works at NBC uh, these days. And it was an attempt to do server-rendered um, JavaScript SPAs mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, you render on the server, so you get the, the beauty and the SEO of server-rendered application, but then the moment the JavaScript kicks in, it reconciles, and boom, you're in a single-page app. And we built the 2014 relaunch of Bloomberg.com using Brisket, which was really interesting. And that was actually my first exposure to a big front-end JavaScript application. So I, I had some exposure to Elm after, which kind of got me really excited, but um, React seemed more practical. And I, I started moving towards React 
um, and then spent a lot of time with React. Um, but I, I never really gave something like Angular or Vue a fair shot. And maybe that's a mistake. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's to me, I guess, like, if you want to give it a fair shot, that's 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 great. I, I guess that's something that I've been kind of doing too, like jumping into Node a little bit. Or I have all these different people like talking my ear off all day long. C Sharp is so great. Dart is awesome. Uh, you know what I mean? So they're like telling me all these things and I want to jump into them. But for me, uh, I don't know. Vue just seemed to click just like Elixir seemed to click with me. And so that's just what I've stuck with. And I, I, th- I feel like I got a little lucky and uh, maybe that's a weird way to say that, but I've got a little lucky that Vue grew up so much. <laughs> uh, and, and because, cause Paul and I kind of like bet on it before it was even 1.0, we were using it, uh, on consulting apps. Uh, I think like when I was at Octopus, so that would have been like, shoot, I don't even know what year it was like 2013, 2014, maybe. 2014, 2015, maybe 13 probably was a little early at that point. Cause we were, I think we we're still using CopyScript and, and backbone and all that. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's just something like I liked it and I feel like I know it well and I'm productive in it. And what's even crazier is I haven't learned anything significantly new with Vue, even like through like Vue 1.0 to 2.0 and 3.0 coming out. Uh, I think sometime next year, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, I haven't had to like relearn it at all like there's been some new updates to it but i haven't needed to use them that's kind of remarkable yeah it's it's crazy because i feel like every time again this is for me out in the outside looking every time i'm looking in the reactor world i'm like oh what's this new thing hooks oh those are cool what's this new thing uh now i forget the word presence not presence uh maybe it starts with a c i can't i can't remember but oh context context uh maybe yeah and it's like every time i'm looking over there i'm like oh there's something new going on that i have to like there's like all these medium posts that are spun up and like twitter goes off about this new thing and i haven't you know i I follow some like view update things and stuff like that but i haven't had to like reinvest any time to like learn new stuff to be productive it's just like the, the the basics are the basics and they haven't changed a whole lot uh, and I'm happy with it. So I just keep using it. Hmm. What else can you ask for? Yeah. <laughs> uh, JavaScript in my temple. Well, you could use, you could use JSX with Vue now perfectly well. So maybe that's a thing you could look at. Yeah. JSX kind of ate the whole ecosystem. I think you could use JSX with a number of different fronted frameworks. Svelte is a really cool one that maybe, maybe it's actually not sure that you could use that with Svelte, but are you familiar with what Svelte is? I'm familiar with Svelte because a friend of the show, Nick, is shouting at me all day long about Svelte. He's a Svelte man now, he says. He says he texted me yesterday. He said, Sapper Nation. Uh, Sapper is Svelte's uh, basically next or next uh, framework. It's like a framework for building server-side apps. But it was just funny. I don't know where he texted me, uh, Sapper Nation. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yes. Svelte is very cool. It, it's uh, built by Rich Harris, who's from the New York Times. Rich Harris, you might know him. He also wrote, he's written a number of things, but Rollup.js, which is sort of a lighter weight um, Webpack mm-hmm. competitor. It, it really doesn't solve as many problems as Webpack does. So it's not really fair to compare them directly, but Rich is a very interesting thinker in the JavaScript space. And uh, I actually think he works on the interactive team for, for New York Times. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. He's a friend of a friend. We've we've never met, but um, I've been following his work for a while now, and um, felt just really cool because it like takes the idea of reactive programming on the front end and turns it into a compiler, <laughs> which yeah, is I, crazy. I think if, if something were to to make pull me away from Vue, I think that Svelte would be it. Like, I I like the philosophy of it quite a bit. Um, the documentation is great. I like the simplicity, like the, well, the perceived simplicity so far anyway, looking from a distance. And I really do enjoy Vue's single file components and Svelte has something very similar. Uh, I think on the side, it what does it say? Put your JavaScript in your HTML instead of your HTML in your JavaScript. It's like backwards. <laughs> but it's very, very interesting to me. Very, very, very interesting to me. But yeah, I have friends that are, that uh, again, friend of the show, Nick, Every time I mention something about React, he tells me like Preact is 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 where you want to go. So uh, if that's the case, then maybe I should just skip to Svelte at some point and uh, check that out. But yeah, I actually should have mentioned all of the React that I said I've been doing was actually Preact, and I, <laughs> uh, it's effectively the same API. So if you know React, you know Preact is just way lighter weight. Like uh, Preact, I think weighs 
three kilobytes instead of a hundred for React. Yeah. So it was a no-brainer for us. It's even way. It's smaller than Vue too, as well. So uh, I've I, I've definitely looked at it. I just I don't know. I, I like I like the flavors that I have right now. So I just stick with them. And maybe it's because I know <laughs> them, and that's why I stick with them. But I, I don't know. I'm just content. I feel like I feel like they do the job well enough, and so I just keep using them. Yeah, right tool for the job, I guess, as they say. Something like that. Yeah, I I enjoyed this discussion a lot, man. I. I we should definitely have you on more often because I learned some stuff about Merkle maps and supervisors. And man, we didn't even get to talk about macros. Oh, guess we'll just. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, I had some thoughts. I had some thoughts coming down the pipe too. So we'll have to we'll have to run it back and do another one, uh, specifically talking about Elixir macros and uh, and I think you you mentioned something about self documenting code versus. Uh, or you had a change of heart on self-documenting code, I think. Yeah, so self-documenting code, it's a myth. Yeah. <sighs> All right, we're gonna have to, <laughs> we're gonna have to run run it back. We'll definitely have to talk about that stuff soon. So I'll be shooting you a message. But um, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. If anyone has any feedback on anything we talked about today, we'd love to hear it. Um, you can find the show's Twitter at dnc.show. You can find me at Sean Washbot. Uh, and you can find Dave at... DavyDog187 on Twitter. DavyDog187. And Rockwell's Schrockwell. Uh, if you want to send him some love on Twitter, I think he could use it. I think he's sort of like detoxing from technology this week. So I, I think like part of a programmer's vacation is like stressing out for the first... 90% of the vacation and then finally relaxing when you're on your way back. <laughs> or at least that's been it on my, in my experience, but hopefully he's not totally with you. Yeah. Hopefully he's not dealing with it. Um, yeah. Show notes, everything, all the diagrams that we talked about today uh, will be available at dnc.show. And uh, yeah, we have discussions going at spectrum.chat. So if you have questions, hit us up over there. And uh, as always, thanks to spec for having us. And uh, thanks for allowing us to have guests like Dave on the show, educating everybody. And uh, if you're into other design and developer related podcasts, you should definitely hit up spec.fm. And uh, today's episode was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. So yeah, thanks again, Dave, for, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure and I can't wait to do it another time. Yeah, no worries. We'll, we'll have to have you back soon to talk. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the weeds uh, as, as it happens with phoenix macros or elixir macros and such sounds great all right i'll talk to you later later thanks again to century.io for sponsoring this week's episode don't wait for users to report errors in order to act on it iterate on your application faster improve customer happiness and make a better product with century's comprehensive error reporting platform check them out at century.io thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring today's episode DigitalOcean really is the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. Visit do.co slash does not to sign up and receive a free credit towards your next application.